Hey guys, I had an amazing conversation with Tanvi Chaudhary, who is the founder and CEO of Papa Cream Ice Cream. Uh, we spoke about how a mechanical engineer from Carnegie Mellon, a Wall Street trader, left all of that, came to India, started an ice cream brand, making ice cream sushi, ice cream burgers, and creating an ice cream experience. How a ban on nitrogen made her pivot her brand from an ice cream experience to one of the best premium ice creams today in the Indian market. and many more things uh, including how the name papa cream came into existence i love how companies get names so this is an interesting story so jump into the podcast hear it out and take some lessons and please apply them in your life i'll see you guys inside tanvi i think uh, papa cream has done phenomenally well and uh, it's like the new ben and jerry's in india thank you right uh, but before we go into that tell me about uh, where have you grown up what have you studied are you like a professional chef Give me a little bit of scoop on that. So I grew up in Calcutta, and I'm so proud about like you know just being from Calcutta. I think people there understand their food really well. Um, I studied mechanical engineering as my undergrad in the US, and then I was a trader on Wall Street. And after which I took the plunge, and I started Papa Cream. I'm not a professional chef, as I just mentioned. You know, I have my background in engineering, finance, but. Uh, I've it everything has been fairly self-taught and I've done some professional courses in the process of doing work uh but yes it is food has always been my passion I'm obsessed with it uh we can talk for hours about food uh I keep researching about you know different world trends so I guess in in an uncanny way I guess I was always meant to do this and uh, but you know the fun thing is that even though my background is very different from food i feel like having studied or worked uh, in the different spaces that i have have helped immensely in what i do today so yeah i guess i think it's a fun combination so yeah. uh, mechanical engineering going to wall street yes i just want to double click on that a little bit how how does that happen i can understand finance economics going to wall street how does a mechanical engineer land up on wall so, street so you know i did mechanical engineering because uh, i used to love math and physics in school um i actually went into the us to be a physics major but when i got there i realized that you know the route ahead was to do like a phd research i didn't want to go in that direction i wanted to do something a little more applied which is why i uh, did mechanical engineering it was not out of a love to build things or anything it's just because i liked the content uh it was just that uh wall street because i think at that point in time it was the cool thing to do uh, i was in college all these business kids were talking about getting into wall street uh the fun thing was that we just had an edge being uh engineers at that point in time wall street loved getting engineers because they wanted people who you know who knew their numbers math logic it came in with a lot of uh, that perception so uh just applied really wanted to just live in new york be on wall street uh and i really enjoyed the thrill of you know like trading we used to have these mock trading contests in uh, college and as like i wanted to do this with real money real life and that's why i just applied and took that uh, plunge into doing um uh, trading i just loved my life in wall street i think it was the best kind of thrill that i ever experienced Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of. But fun. doesn't that come with a lot of pressures? The I I don't think they follow like a nine to five thirty work culture. It right? isn't, but I think it default. Uh, it varies a lot, but I think the thrill, the adrenaline rush is so high 
that none of that matters, you know. Um, it's the first time you're making real money right out of college, right? So that itself is a rush. And uh, you're making enough to sort of like enjoy your life in New York. So, and I think, uh, yes, there is a lot of pressure. But early on, when you're like an associate or something, it's not the same as when you're like an MD or something managing the whole books. Of course, like we were a team of four people trading a billion dollars, right? So it's a lot of money still, but uh, it's still not. So there's, so, you know, it's like a two-way sword where it's not your money, but at the same time, when you're trading somebody else's money, there's a lot of responsibility. So that's where the pressure aspect of it comes. But imagine that you've researched a trade, you're given this kind of money and it's a success. So the high that you feel is crazy. So I think that was like, it was a lot of fun doing that. Uh, what what lesson did you learn on Wall Street that you apply at Papa Cream? Uh, and this is what I, I think I do, what my boss did to me. And I think I sort of believe this, that uh, he just came to me and he's like, trade. I was like, it's a lot of money. I've never done this. You want to, he's like, no, I'm not going to help you figure it out. So he kind of just throws you in the ocean and you just learn how to swim. And I feel the learning that comes from figuring it out on your own is just something that cannot come any other way. Like, you know, you're just on the edge. You're given this big challenge. But like when when you overcome that challenge and when you've learned it, I think the, the learning is the steepest there. And I think that's, uh, you have to delegate and trust so I think that is something that I've learned and I like very seriously, fiercely implemented Papa Cream where I give people a lot of responsibility early on. I love to tell them that, look, you are managing this. It comes with a sense of responsibility and they're like, you know, she trusts me. So I have to prove myself. So I feel like and I've seen a lot of people grow with that responsibility. They take pride. You know, they start feeling like it's their own. And I think that's, you know, a big uh, achievement for both them and me. Absolutely. So I think there are two lessons that I got from this and which we are already doing at uh, Equinox. The first one is uh, giving people responsibility early on and allowing them to make mistakes. Right. And two, letting them figure it out. Because if you spoon feed everything, that learning is very superficial. Correct. But once you're thrown in the deep end and saying, hey, go figure this out. You are forced to research, you're forced to make mistakes, you're forced to rectify your own mistakes because finally you're held accountable for the outcome. Correct. Your, your little mistakes here and there may be okay as long as the outcome is good, Correct. it's fine, right? Uh, but that capability of people that gets developed and the sense that we want to instill is everything in life is figure outable. Now, once a person understands that, that everything in life is figure outable, the way they operate completely changes. Right? Like right. today, uh, we've done multiple things. We do a lot of innovation. We make a lot of mistakes in, and innovation. See, we have our main, main businesses where there's processes in place where it has to be repeatable. But then there's the innovation side where we create new things. In the new things, we make a ton of mistakes. Like, of course. Ton means yeah. a ton of mistakes and those mistakes are encouraged. In main business, you can't encourage mistakes because the final product is going to the customer. You can't be like experiment on the product right. going out. I'm very sure that is that yeah. would be slightly dangerous. But right. in R&D allow people to make mistakes and I think you'll I'm very sure a lot of fun things have happened because oh my of God, that so innovation much, right? yeah. so uh, tell me about the name Papa Cream that sounds very interesting I'd love to hear the story behind it yeah, so you know when we came up with the idea uh, we wanted to come up with a name and you know there was a lot of discussion around the name uh, but how Papa Cream came about so I was clear that I wanted something that's very comforting and everybody should be able to pronounce it 
Uh, so then in jest, my father-in-law just said that, you know, I love ice cream. I'm most excited about this business. Um, you know, how about I become the brand ambassador and call it Papa Cream? And it was something he just said in jest, uh, but it just rung a bell. I was like, nice. this is it because it just takes you home. It's such a warm name. Uh, it it connects with the vision of accessibility in some sense that it's for everyone. Um, high recall value. You know, we uh, when we launched, a lot of like stuff started to do the rounds like, Papa's this, Papa's that, Papa comes to town. You know, like there was a lot of fun, uh, fun play around the word Papa. And uh, and there were a lot of, there was a lot of fun uh, play in terms of how it was pronounced also. But like a lot of mockery in the sense, Papa, I've heard a lot of funny things like, you know, around that. Papa cream, Papa 100%, 100%. And Papa no, I, like, I've heard a lot Papa of funny no things. Cream. Yeah, I've heard a lot of crazy things. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but yeah, the, the point was that there was a recall. And uh, it takes you straight, you know, it takes you home. And ice cream is for that, you know, comfort, happiness. So I was like, I'm going with this. Uh, there was a lot of feedback that I got before I launched it that, you know, are you sure you want to keep this? Because, you know, it's fairly premium. It has this very gourmet vibe. Uh, Papa cream seems like a lot more massy. I said, I don't know. I connect with this. And I think to a great extent, I'm a lot about gut call. So I'm like, this is it. You know, I just want to go for it. It, it. I didn't even take too long. It just, you know, one of those things where you know it is, that's it what is. it is. That's how Many a just... times the best ideas, uh, many people think that they would be bad. Many people uh, say like, oh, you know, I just going with your first choice. Like, haven't you done research around it? You should have at least have 10 names and then, you know. Yeah. But many a times as founders, you need to be able to trust your gut. Right. And in the long term, it makes a lot of sense. Like I remember the name uh, when we named Equinox. Right. It it's, doesn't sound like an Indian company. It doesn't sound like a lab. Right? It Equinox, the lab word right. again makes it sound like a lab. But when I heard that name and uh, uh, my mother actually suggested that name and they were not even in the country, they were out somewhere. And I was like, hey, I formed this company and I don't want to name it. Uh, you know, uh, can you suggest a couple of names? So they didn't say it. My mom was like, hey, I just uh, you know, saw this name Equinox and I thought it's a pretty cool name. And I was like, done yeah. no market research no nothing and but end of the day i think it's finally what you do with the choices you've made right uh today equinox is a name that is in most companies and the markets that we want have access to most people in those markets know who we are what we do because our name is different if our name sounded like every other lab right it, it didn't stand sense, out, correct. right? And uh, so I think Papa Cream also does exactly the same for you. It's, it doesn't uh, sound like an everyday it uh, ice yeah. cream. It, it, it definitely has a uniqueness to it. And uh, it just rolls off your tongue. Correct. It's not difficult to pronounce. Correct. Right? So when you uh, started Papa Cream, what was the main ideology? Like, What was the need for you to start a Papa Cream? So I think, uh, you know... Uh, as we were chatting on and off, uh, you know, when I came in and started Papa Cream, it was very clear that I wanted to add value in some way, you know. And uh, and at that point in time, I saw that there was a huge gap in the ice cream market in the premium space where we had a lot of our Masi players like your Amul, Varilal, who did a great job with scale. Uh, and then you had your Hagendas in London Dairy on the other end of the spectrum, which were imported. So premium ice creams in India was imported, you know, which came at a price. Uh, there was an issue with affordability for the larger uh, audience. And so there was a gap with like local indigenous 
uh, premium ice cream in the country. And that's the gap that I wanted to fill in where we wanted to be like the Ben and Jerry's of India. We should be exporting, you know, uh, of course, after we meet the demands of the country uh, where people say that, you know, hey, this is an imported ice cream from India. You know, so that was the value that I wanted to bring at the table, bridge that gap. And at the same time, uh, bring in a lot of newness. You know, um, there was not a lot of fun stuff going on with ice cream. You know, it was, okay, you get this ice cream. It was the same kind of communication, the same kind of flavors. We wanted to bring in a lot of fun. So if you see like our whole branding content, there's a lot of color. There's a lot of fun language. There's a lot of humor. So, you know, wanted to start almost like a movement around fun, unique, crazy ice cream. And uh, the goal was always never to just be like a local artisanal player. Uh, you know, with all due respect to people who do that, uh, it was just that I had a different vision. I wanted to scale. I wanted to be accessible. It was for everyone and I wanted to reach everyone. So the challenge or the idea was to create premium ice cream at affordable rates and be accessible everywhere with local manufacturing. Nice. Uh, so is this something you started by yourself? Do you have a co-founder? How, how did that foundation? So I started it on my own. Uh, I'm the sole founder of the company. And, uh, you know, when I uh, started, it was very exciting. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I just knew I wanted to go. And I was, I was sure that there will be challenges, uh, but I was ready to figure it out. So your, is your, your husband plays no role in... So if I have to bounce off ideas in terms of strategy or something, uh, then like, you know, he'll come in and we'll discuss. But uh, he has his own business. So th this is more again like something that he's living through me because he's also into food, loves food. So he's very, he was very excited when I wanted to start this. So I think his role is more advisory in terms of strategy and things like that. Um, and I think he, when I came in, I think he knew the Indian market a little better than I did because I'd lived away for a very long time. Uh, but I think the overall day-to-day -day operations and looking at growth, marketing, business, finance is... That's all on you. Yeah. So, uh, since you got married into a business family, right. was there any pressure to join the family business? Not really. No? Uh, I think the idea was always there, but I think that my husband and my, uh, was very clear that, you know, you should do something of your own. And uh, like it was, there was no need. I okay. mean, uh, you know, really, so it would huh. be in some sense like disguised unemployment just because I had to do something. <laughs> oh, I love and, the word disguised unemployment. You know, like, uh, but uh, yeah. So, and I think they were, to be honest, they always knew I was a foodie. And when I made the move to come here, I was always, I mean, I was sure that I wanted to do something in the food space. So I think they were all as a family very excited. As I said that, you know, they were all obsessed with food. So they're like, perfect. We know that. And none of them are in food. They don't know anything. Nobody is in food. I didn't know anybody in the space. I, I'm not from Bombay. Ah. Uh, so it was completely new. Like, you know, even initially something like hiring took so long for me because I didn't have contacts. Nobody in the family knew anything about the food business. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of learning. Uh, the I, I Sometimes I feel like could I have shortened the curve a little bit, you know. But uh, and now I, I have a lot of friends who are starting and I feel like there's so much. I said, why didn't I have somebody like this, you know, in my life back then? But I guess everything has its own merits. Absolutely. So uh, when you started Papa Cream, you had a vision of where you would be five years from now. Yeah. Do you think as a company, are you there yet? Are you going to get there or have you already crossed it? 
Uh, I don't know. I think we pivoted in the middle. So I guess the vision... Uh, so when I started, to be honest, except for the goal of being accessible and being everywhere, uh, in, in that sense, yes, we have gotten there. Uh, but I think the model has changed. So what is the first model? So the first model was actually to have stores. Okay. I had about 15 stores across the country. Oh, wow. When okay. we started. And it was actually to create an ice cream meal experience. You know, uh, so we were doing a lot of like live ice creams. And uh, we were doing like starters, main course and dessert in the form of ice cream. So we had ice cream sushis, we had ice cream burgers. And now it all sounds very pretentious. But back then it was really No, it actually cool. sounds quite, I it mean, sounds really quite a lot fun. of fun. I mean, that's something yeah, definitely out of it. was so much fun. Ice cream sushi definitely got my attention. We had <laughs> so many layers, like even the ice cream sushi, uh, there had to be like tanginess. It had to look like that. There was like... Uh, fudge which was like to mock the soy which uh. you dip your sushi in so it was a lot of fun stuff that we were doing and we wanted to replicate this in parlors across the country so we we managed to get to about 15 across the country oh, wow. and that's when that's we huge. started to pivot yeah but why did why did you decide to pivot so uh two three things one was we were doing live ice creams so it was using nitrogen so that was never our concept or our selling point. It was always the ice cream. But because it was live, that was the easiest way to kind of do it. Um, there was an instant ban of nitrogen across the country. There was somebody in Haryana who decided to drink it. And of course, the rules, you know, people being very extreme with all of this had like a nationwide ban on uh, nitrogen. So that was like a huge bummer. But the good thing is, you know, something always good comes out of Every incident, I believe, Absolutely. that, uh, you know, around that time, we were basically approached by Godrej to develop vegan ice creams at that point in time for them. And we were actually going to white label for them because they wanted to start their own tubs at their stores, which was Godrej Nature's, Nature's Basket, Basket at yeah. that point in time. And they knew that, you know, uh, we had proven quality. We did good ice cream. So they, they reached out to us that, can you develop a vegan ice cream? For us, because there's a lot of demand. It's like the new thing. We started to do that for them. And this was while we were still running our stores. Um, we didn't really look much further there. But uh, when we got the product ready and everything, their team for white label was not ready. So they said, why don't you launch it with your brand since everything's ready and there is a demand. And then we'll get to it, you know, when our team's ready. But when we did that, we saw there was phenomenal demand and we were able to like scale because we immediately supplied to all their stores across the country. There was great demand. And I was like, this seems like so much better as a business model because you have your manufacturing facility that you're looking at. Your focus is on developing the product, which was always the initial idea. And then you're also able to reach scale faster Instead of setting up like stores, which has like a timeline, there's still an area radius that it's capex, limited to. There's so many other things. So you, many manpower, things. Manpower, because manpower Ops, was 15, There's a whole stores. different yeah. operate. I mean, I, at one point, I felt like 95% of my job was operations and not food, you know. So uh, I felt like this is a phenomenal idea. So I was like, hey, you know, I think we're sticking to doing this with our brand. And that's when the ban sort of happened. So FN, FMCG just kind of became the default out of a project that we were doing. And then we started to scale that more, more, more. And then at that point, because vegan was such a new thing, it was like an easy entrance into a lot of places, right? That were looking at doing this. But I knew that I loved the ice creams that I'd created at the parlors across. And I knew that I wanted to, you know, bring that. 
So when we built a name with the vegan ice creams, then I brought all those ice creams back in different formats um, back to FMCG. And then the whole online boom happened when the pen, uh, pandemic okay. started. And then now it's just moved so much online, you know, but uh, that was our move, uh, move into FMCG, a very natural pivot, so to say. But, uh, but it's interesting to see that how an adversity create an opportunity. Correct. Right. And many times when something goes wrong, people just sit and cry about like, oh, this happened because of which I lost money and business and whatever it is. Right. But if you train your mind to see opportunities, even in the worst possible cases, you'll find them. Right. Like right. this, like imagine I can I, I can imagine what you went through, like a big part of experience suddenly becomes illegal. Correct. You could have just been frozen and saying like, oh my God, I have to shut all this down. Right. But you were able to you know, gather the strength and quickly pivot to something different. Right. I think that was fantastic. So you started with vegan, but now is that all? FMCG, we started with vegan. Okay. We didn't start the brand The brand vegan. wasn't vegan. It okay. was because right now you have vegan as well as non-vegan We have products. vegan, sugar-free. We have an indulgence range. Uh, yeah. Now we've just launched uh, our uh, push-up ice lollies, which I'm so proud of because I, I've been I working on it forever. I just read about them a couple. I was meaning to get some. It was too early, so you're going to get a box from us and let me know. And, what uh, no, think. I literally read about it a couple of days ago when I saw. Oh, okay. I saw. I think I saw an update from you saying hey, push-up lollies are coming up. Like that. That sounds interesting because, that, especially I think for kids, that is an amazing right. product because as a parent, you don't always want to give them an indulgence thing every like you know every correct, week. Correct. You know, so push-up lolly is something that they would uh, yeah, enjoy. For kids, but I think the idea, to be honest, really was convenience. What I started to feel in this space was, and what was selling, was individual portions and convenience. Everybody is on the go today. Like the quick shopper, the impulse shopper is looking for something that's easy to eat, is conveniently packaged, it's on the go. It's not meant to like share with the whole family, which earlier was the ice cream eating concept. You know, so that's why we're moving into more things like that. Uh, we also have like ice cream cake slices, and uh, in the FMCG format, it's packed like a pastry. Oh, lovely! It's completely packaged like a pastry. So nice. it's again meant for like maybe a family of two, or like you know, just for you to eat on the go. The whole packaging is such that you open, eat while you're in your car. Or, wow! So that that's sort of like you know the idea with a lot of this. So push up lollies, just use one hand, push it up. If it melts, it goes back into back in it. The thing. Lovely. So, so I, I love the convenience part, but one insight that I've been seeing is earlier ice cream used to be only for celebrations when you have people coming over. But now I think people have started using it on a daily basis, even when there is nobody. People order ice cream just for oh, just for a couple or just for the family. There's no occasion. Right? Back in the day, it used to be for an occasion. Correct. Or oh, guests are coming. Oh, it's a birthday. Oh, as a dessert, Let's we got ice, ice cream. But I think that mind shift change has been a very you know pivotal part. And the convenience factor is uh, right. fantastic. And people now have also start making healthier choices. Right? Uh, I was just uh, right now in Europe and I saw a front of label, a new thing that have, has come up over there, which is A, B, C, D, E. Packaging on the front of 90% of products I saw. Okay. They had an A, B, C, D rating right up front. And the interesting part was I was picking up something. My daughter was right there and I picked up something for them. Uh, she said, no, no, daddy, put that back. She's like, why? She's like, no, that's a C. There's a one right next to this B. I would rather have that. Wow. Making it so easy for people to have make a more conscious choice. And the interesting part is this is coming to India. 
It is. It is coming to India very, very wow. soon. Uh, FSCS is bringing it in. Uh, where you'll have front-of-table packaging. I think right now the concept is it's going to be a five-star rating system like the ones you have on ACs and uh, fridges and things that way. Uh, I'm going to see if I can work and on make it ABCD, just a little bit more easier to understand. But I think the reason they're going for five-star is even if you don't know how to read and write. Five-star rating. doing this rating? Because it's very dynamic, right? It is very dynamic. It would uh, depend from category to category. But work is happening on this right now where that categorization is being worked on. Okay. So you'll be able to put in your nutrition value and it'll give you a, like, hey, here is your rating. And then if you want a, oh, you want a five-star product or a healthier product, oh, here are the changes you can make okay, to so make it's, it healthier. It's, the rating is based on the nutritional value of the product. Correct. Fair so basically, if it's high fat, high sugar, obviously it'll drop it down. If it's low fat, low sugar, it would come up. That would be one of the categories, but one of the criterias. But there are more criterias coming in. But I think uh, what I'm seeing is people are choosing to eat healthier than they can. I'm not saying they're not indulging. They're indulging, so they would still have an ice cream, but they would have maybe a healthier ice cream. They'll go for a sugar-free option, they'll go Correct. for a vegan option. So they will actually look for options. If it's available, people take it, right? I, I, we had done this very uh, fun little experiment at uh, Juhu Beach, where uh, about this is about a decade ago. And the idea was we were looking at, do people value hygiene? That was the concept we wanted to check. So what we did is uh, we had gone to all the uh, Pani Puri stalls. And half of them, we asked them to start using portable water, bottled water, bisleri water okay. in their pani puris, right? And charge a couple of rupees more. First, they were very hesitant, saying nobody's going to buy. That was, obviously, that was the natural reaction. So would mine, right? Like, oh, why would I increase my cost of raw material? Will people pay for quality? And we announced it and we actually made the labels for them, okay, hey, bottled water is being used, blah, blah, blah. And it was, I think, a couple of rupees more. And then we saw the line for the one where if normal something is 12 rupees, this is 14, but it says bottled water. People with kids would line up here, be okay paying a couple of rupees more. A lot of the entrepreneurs I meet, they take a lot of you know time, money, effort. They spend so much you know effort creating amazing products, creating healthy products, but, but they're not able to showcase it to the world. In a proper way, they're like, oh, no, uh, many people come to me for one-on-one -on -one consulting or mentoring. And in that, the biggest challenge is, hey, I'm doing this amazing thing, but most people don't know about it. Right? So, overcoming that challenge becomes a big thing for uh, uh, Papa Cream. I mean, so, for uh, food businesses. So, at Papa Cream, you have a high quality, you have a created a good brand. How do you solve for this problem? Like, how do you communicate high quality to your consumers? So, you know, I think a lot of it comes from the content you create and the language you use, right? So, when you look at our brand positioning, when you look at our uh, Instagram now, which is the biggest, you know, way to sort of communicate what your brand is, you'll, you'll get a sense, right? Uh, a lot of times, even without them saying, I think it's very important to communicate, but even without saying a lot of times, when you look at the brand language or you look at how a brand is being positioned, you get a sense of quality, of how the product is. So I think a lot of that comes in a very uncanny way. Uh, that is about perception. How you actually go about communicating is the content you create, right? So in a lot of our videos, we now use a lot of text, bold text, not a lot of elaborative copies, but a lot of bold text and supers on our videos, which, you know, get the message across in a very clear way. And of course, over research, we realized that, you know, video retention is much higher. So like smarter ways of advertising. 
so that is definitely something we do. Uh, also, a lot of things on how you can use the product in a healthier fashion. So there's a lot of video tutorials around that as well. So I think all these uh, ways, you know, you have to communicate. Even the ads that you run have to be informative in a way that you can grab attention. So, you know, I think a lot of these things come from research and also by just doing. You know, I mean, I think it just by like doing a lot of times, you'll understand how, why people are consuming it, how even your packaging, the communication is so important. You know, how do you get that clean communication across in the best possible? So the advantage of doing a premium product is just the fact that it's premium. The perception of people as it is better. Right. Uh, so as a company, we are not the cheapest in the market. We are also the premium, the, the Ben and Jerry equivalent in the ice cream world. We are, we are very similar in our space. Uh, but with that comes expectations. With that, obviously, when we position yourself as a premium brand, uh, people understand that, hey, uh, you know, there will be something good happening behind. Uh, today, less than 0.01% of our customers visit our laboratories. We've created world-class facilities world class we've overdone it like we've created even though we do food water air testing each and every facility of ours is pharma grade right even though it's not required we do it that way because we want to you know we can afford to and we want to always create the best possible environment for the testing to happen the the fun part is 99.99 percent of customers have never stepped foot in our laboratory and i invite people like, please anyone wants to come don't tell us just show up i'll send you my car like so many people when they come to mumbai especially our central laboratory and they're like, oh, no, I, you know, I have a meeting near uh, airport and I have to go back and I don't know how to get. I'm like, I'll send you my vehicle. Please come to my lab. We've created a world-class facility. Please come and see it. So people are like, no, no, they're perfectly fine. And I'm like, one day I asked somebody and there's a very senior person in the industry. And I asked him, but hey, you're giving us your core product for testing. Right? We're doing so much work for you. You've not set foot in our facility. Why is that? He's like, no, because you have the reputation. You have the brand. Right? We don't need to. So many other people are working with you. So I think the big advantage in that you would have just because you've positioned yourself as premium, nobody is going to doubt your quality and they would assume that you know you're doing a good job. And right. as long as you're doing like, I'll it, give you a very uh, fun example that that was learning for me. You know, like I I never wanted to position ourselves purely as a health brand. Right. So I said that just like Ben and Jerry's, a lot of the brands, I want to do everything under the ice cream umbrella. So I will have an indulgent range. I will have a healthy range. I will do everything in that space for like, I will do stuff for patients. I will, uh, you know, do stuff for people with specific dietary needs. But I want to do everything in that space. And I want to cater to everyone again, coming back to accessibility. So uh, when we did that, and then they were like, okay, because but you haven't positioned yourself as a healthy brand. So if you try to do that, why would people buy a product? I said, it's because of the proof of quality that you've created. So we started our sugar-free vegan a couple of months ago, right? It's my highest selling product on Swiggy. I didn't have to market myself as I've never have, you know, we've marketed that specific product. In fact, we've marketed that product the least, you know, because I wanted to know what the response is. But it just is the highest selling product because it's a proof of quality. They trust you with something. If I'm calling it a sugar free, it is a sugar free, you know. Correct. So um, you are very focused on the FMCG sector. Have you ever looked at a B2B angle for growing Papa Cream? So, you know, if there is a way to grow, I mean, you know, if there is business, why not? 
Uh, so we have looked at that for sure. We are recently, okay. you know, doing some of it also. Not in it doesn't contribute to the largest part of our revenues, but we have stepped into B two B also. But that being said, there is a certain level. So, like for example, uh, there are certain requirements in B two B which does require us to sort of like really dumb down our product. So that's a hard call you need to take. That you know, what's the business you kind of want to say no, which is really not uh, you know what your brand stands for and what is within the realm of it. So you can't take on as a, as a founder the ability to say no. I think far exceeds the ability to say yes because you see so many opportunities. Right. Which are the right ones, right? Sometimes there is volume, but they want a dumbed down product. They want pricing, which is a right. throwaway in which you will not make money or you will have to dilute your product or dilute Correct. your quality to be Correct. able to meet that. And as a brand, sometimes you have to just learn to say no. Correct. And it, it's very difficult because normally those choices are quite hard because, oh, there's a big revenue chunk. Right. But it's also diluting brand equity. Correct. Should you, can I do it, right? right. So right. I, I, I can completely empathize with that. As a solo founder, what is the biggest challenge that you think? that you need to overcome or you have to work so i mean is it be, you're asking more because i'm a solo founder or just in general as a solo founder i know so many companies you know where there are multiple co-founders right. uh, those come with their own set of challenges but as a solo founder i think there are a lot of challenges that you face so, so. i think uh, uh, to answer that specific question i feel uh, there are a lot of challenges every day but specifically for that i would say that sometimes i really feel like because there are so many divisions right and as a very passionate entrepreneur you kind of want to know everything right but you have to delegate to grow and sometimes i really feel like there's only so many parts that i can be divided into so it would be great if I could have somebody who could just look at like my finance or could just do marketing. Because sometimes when I'm doing marketing, I'm so into it, you know, about brand building. And then like, hey, there's this bit also. But imagine if there were like three me's doing it full time. That would be great, right? So, I mean, that, that's just a way to think. But I'm sure there are a lot of merits also. So it's always like, you know, Absolutely. pros and cons of everything. So a big pro of being a solo founder and then multiple of my ventures, I am the solo founder, is... a you don't have to really check in with anybody right. for the decisions you make. But that also can become a con because there is nobody else holding you accountable Correct. and you have to manage everything on the plate. All the departments kind of report into you. But the one way of overcoming that and uh, as you start hitting larger scales, right, uh, you need to find amazing people and empower them and they become like the founder of that department. Correct. And once you're able to give them that freedom, you don't need to worry about that. Right. For the first three months, six months, yes, you need to oversee them. You have to probably give them SOPs, uh, give them like, hey, this is everyday work and here's what newer innovation looks like, but here's what everyday work looks like, right? So once everyday work is sorted, the new and innovation is where you can experiment. Uh, a big issue that I see with many people is they keep all the R&D innovation all with themselves, which is okay when you're just starting out. But as you scale, even every single department head should have innovation as a part of their KRA. Yes. Because if you keep all innovation with you, you're only going to be able to scale as much as you yourself are capable of. And many a times, since you're stretched so thin across so many other things, innovation is never a priority. Right. But if you kind of distribute that responsibility with it everybody, become... automatically there's innovation happening. And I think a real success would be tomorrow somebody has created a new flavor and it's ready to launch. And they're coming and showing, hey, here's a product and you just taste it. You're like, good. Wow, and it launches. Is... 
that would be an amazing thing to happen. And I know it's very difficult and for me, it would be very, like, if you told me this 10 years ago, I'd be like, no, 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 I don't think anyone is capable of innovation. Like, oh, my teams, I don't think yeah, they'd be there yet. But that was my own personal mindset that prevented that, right? Uh, once I was able to overcome that fact that, you know what, uh, I don't have to be the smartest in the room in every single aspect. I know people who are better at, at something. And I should be hiring people who are better at something than me. Being able to overcome that, because as a founder, you want to be, when you start off, you want to be the smartest. And that's the natural reaction. Right, of course. But as you grow, it's, you need to hire somebody who knows more, more in correct. a specific field Absolutely. than you. I think that shows an evolution of a founder himself or herself, right? Uh, have you hired somebody who is smarter than you? And how was that experience? If you if you have, how was that experience? I don't know if like I can just clearly say that because I think smartness is so subjective in Correct. so many ways. Correct. So I don't know if I can really say that, but I've definitely hired people uh, in who in that field know more than me. subject matter experts. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. So I think that I've definitely done, and I think it's great because I don't know me as a founder. I'm not very like this is mine. I've always been from day one, maybe because of the experience I've had working in a company before, which allowed me to have that freedom. I give a lot of freedom. I believe in delegation from day one. Even when we were a small team and there was not really a need to do that, I always did that. So I believe in like delegation. Nice. Uh, I'm also like an Excel Nazi. So okay. I love Excel because <laughs> I mean, a lot of my work was on Excel. So I create a lot of systems like on, uh, you know, Excel, which is easy to like monitor and do things. And it's so funny how like my entire team breathes Excel now, right? They've become so good at Excel and they understand that they understand the value of like data, you know? So uh, I think it's... So when you said uh, Excel, I remember uh, about seven, eight years ago, I used to be like a king at Excel. Like anything, I would be like, oh, let's bring it in Excel right. and let's bring it in and let's automate it. And, and any evidence to come to me like, oh, we need this done. How do we do it? And uh, at that point, a couple of my new teammates had joined and they showed a lot of liking towards Excel. So I taught them whatever I knew and uh, which was maybe 10% of what Excel is capable of. But today they are probably at 50, 60, 70% of they know Excel and I go to them now. I'm like, hey, I need this data. Can you please? Right. Because yeah. I know I would take one or two, it will probably take you two. Yeah, minutes. correct. But it's so good to see that they have taken their uh, liking, they have dug deeper and now they've become experts in that field. Excel and there's so many different, different, different So fields. many different, I mean, I feel it's so powerful. Like, you know, now, uh, I mean, of course, now I have to go into different systems and all of that eventually. But like, I just feel it is, it's such a powerful tool and so simple to create systems, you know, like uh, sometimes you just think over problems and it's all so chaotic, but that one sheet can just put everything, you know, together in terms of you supervising it also, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, uh, let, let's shift gears a little bit. What do you think uh, technology, like what technology do you use at Papa Cream that differentiates you from others? Is there any technology that you're using, any uh, process that you're using at Papa Cream that you think, hey, like, I think we are using it differently, hence it kind of makes us... So we use a lot of Google Forms. Uh, I use a lot of Google Forms, which is linked to... Excel, Excel, <laughs> Excel sheets. So I think, and what I've done is, uh, we've created those Google Forms 
as apps on their phone. Nice. So what we do is like I see this, I saw this as a big problem where I would keep being like this, I need this data, I'd, I'll get this done, I'll get this done. But then I realized that, hey, what is the real problem, right? Because it's not just setting an expectation. It's realizing whether it's really achievable or not. Correct. So I think one thing I saw is like, lot of, let's say my dispatch, he's always on the go, right? So to actually expect him to come back and sit on the computer and it's... It's very anti his job environment, right? So then this Google form is like an app on your phone. And it's such that you don't actually have to sit on Excel and fill data. You just put in those two, three things on the go. Whenever, as soon as you've done it, you're talking to somebody, you're talking to these transport agents, and then you just fill it in and it's populated. And then it's real time that everybody can see. So I don't need to like call follow up. It's just... Uh, you know, getting populated. So I've created these forms now for a lot of departments. Nice. I've done that for accounts. I've done that for dispatch. Now uh, I'm building that for like task sheets. So you just populate it and the task sheet goes. It automatically sends you a reminder. Hey, you got this, this to do. Lovely. So I don't have to call and remind, hey, I need this. It just goes, you know. So nice. a lot of it, that whole communication makes things a little inefficient sometimes. So this just sort of bridges that. So I think Google Forms in a very simple, easy way has sort of made things a lot easier. It's the simplicity of processes and systems that actually make it easier to use. Yeah. Right. You can easily go and make a very complex software around it. Right. Uh, So we use a lot of tech uh, at Equinox and it's mainly not around testing. I mean, because many people look at us, they're like, oh, you're a testing company. Lot of our tech, the, the funny part is, the last piece of tech that we've created, the large piece of software, was for the testing side because testing side was running smoothly anyways. It was all the other pieces that were scaling much faster and didn't have industry-defined standards. For example, when testing, we have to follow certain methods. You can't really go and change the method. So if I have to do 10 ml or something, I have to put 10 ml of it only. But in many, like all the other aspects of business, we realized that if you want to scale, you have to have processes. So we obviously created the processes. Uh, we started with Excel sheets. Excel sheets work beautifully for us. Excel, I mean, we as a company work on Google, Google Apps, right? So all Google Sheets, Google uh, Docs, all SOPs and Google Docs. Uh, we use Google Drive to store everything. Uh, all our data used to be in Excel sheets or Google Sheets. But there was a time uh, when we started hitting the limit of what Google Sheets could pull because they had like a million lines of data. And like 50 columns, million lines, Can't, yeah. it, it, it started to break. At which point we were forced to pivot into creating our own software, which was very interesting. Uh, many people think that, oh, it's the tech that will drive everything. Tech is just a small arm which enables processes to be kind of you know made rigid or to be made sure they're followed. But I think that's culture. So you can start that culture of process or data right from an Excel sheet, right? Uh, as a founder, how important do you think data is? I think it's the most important thing. Like I have started to believe that like data should be your first marriage. Like just marry your data. You know, it's the it just solves so many things. I've actually started to spend time now, like uh, I'm a very early riser, just out of like, you know, a belief. Uh, And I think in the morning, that time where, you know, it's completely undisturbed, I look at data. So like, uh, whether it's your PNLs or everything, it gives you such a good perspective. Like imagine the data is not there and you're running your business. It's just on like a feeling, right? Which is great. But over a period of time, when you actually bring that data into picture, your perspective changes. 
it's like this feeling was great but it doesn't make sense you know so i think a lot of data analytics is very very important and i think for a founder that should like be at least 30% of your job to just analyze the data and strategize based on data and you just have to know your like you just have to marry it i i couldn't agree more uh, what i've realized and this took me a good i think 4 5 years it of businesses be, and multiple it, failures absolutely. to understand the importance of it uh back in the day every decision i took was gut based right but once i started understanding the importance of data and started using data in decision making obviously there's still a lot of gut feels that you do uh, there's a lot of insights that you need to look for in data because see data is just you can have a uh, 10000 line sheet you know excel in front of you but what is the insight that you're getting from it like what is actionable based on that right so even um, at equinox all the leaders have been taught here ki when you look at data in large amounts first of all try and pivot it to something more manageable and to look for trends look for patterns look for actionable insights that we can do something with like oh you presented dashboard to me great but now what oh you're looking at last 12 months of a certain trend how we're doing audits across different cities okay that's great but now my next question to them so first my expectation was hey guys you need to know your data now my expectation has changed slightly now that is a given you have to have data that so there is no like it's a it's basic hygiene as a leader you need to have data what is your insight like after seeing this data now what action are you going to take like what is the data telling you now once i start asking that question automatically all my leaders now look at the data differently they would have some like recommendations like okay after seeing this i think we should do this like uh, when we expanded the number of labs which cities to put the labs in right how big should those be how many samples they should be able to manage how many all... you have now Dan? today we have 6 oh, and nice. four of them were set up during the pandemic wow <laughs> which was a very very interesting and extremely controversial move in right. our uh, space because while the pandemic was going on lot of businesses were shutting down right and we did something extremely controversial one is we went 3x on our facilities we went from 2 to 6 Wow! From two labs to six labs, uh, we went five x on sales, which was yeah. Wow! Which was a very difficult move to pull off, and very honestly, I wouldn't be able to do it if one of my mentors hadn't guided me to it, right? And I was planning to double it, but he said, "Hey, why not five x?" And I was like, "Oh, there's money involved. There's this. There's that." He just showed me a different way of structuring it, which made a lot of sense, right? so i think having uh, mentors definitely helped me when you started or did you have somebody in the industry that kind of helped I you i actually guide? didn't okay. to be honest i really didn't have like a mentor or something a lot of it was just learning and that's something i was going to ask you like you know what is the importance like do you really see a value because i heard a lot of people having mentors now i uh, you know see the value in you know seeking help asking people about their experiences and that's helped a lot but having a constant mentor is i mean so one is and is he your investor got in uh, one of my so today i have eight different mentors uh, for different different aspects uh, of business and life and uh, one of them is my investor okay and uh, but n- not necessarily that your mentors need to be investors actually he's one of my last mentors who have kind of uh, who started working with me Uh, but apart from that everyone in the past has been uh, people who have experience in that field but before that the mindset that a founder needs to have about having a mentor is letting go of ego because a big issue that i see with most founders is they they 
they are scared to ask for help or they think it looks bad if they ask for help. It makes people feel inadequate. But I think that is because it's your ego that, oh, if I have built this company, how can I go and ask an outside person, how will that make me look? I think that's a bit of ego that talks and I also possibly did that for the first few years of uh, you know, my career. Uh, but the minute I realized that, hey, why do I have to make all the mistakes? People have made mistakes. Yeah, why, why can't, can't you I shorten your them, curve? Right? Yeah. Why can't I shorten the curve? And the minute that realization came, then I actively went and I searched for people who would add value. Now, there are mentors I talk to once in a year. There are mentors I possibly talk to once in a month. Right? And that conversation can vary between five minutes to an hour. Right? And uh, the ability is first finding the right person. The person should be able to guide you. Not tell you what to do, but guide you what to do. Very different. One is somebody coming and telling me, hey, you should go 5x. Versus, hey, if you're saying this, why not this? Or if you're going to FMCG, why aren't you looking Making at you this? think. Making you think, even though they may know the answer. But making you understand the process to get to that answer. Right? The whole Socrates method of kind of, you know, asking the why. Like, why, why, why? And uh, I think a mentor should be able to do that. Two, if you're going down a completely wrong path. Somebody can come and say, hey, you know what, I've kind of done that and I know where that ends. It's possibly my end here. Why don't we analyze the risk, right? None of the mentors I have today will tell me exactly what I need to do. But they will guide me on what I need to do, right? Which is very important. Three, I think you should have complete faith in that person. That that person has your best interests at heart. Can't be conflict of interest. So it's... it's it would be very uh, weird to have a mentor who is in the exact same line of business as you. So you choose who you want your mentor to be as yes. well. And the last but not the least is what value are you adding to them? It could be something like is it just you are going and asking for free advice all the time? And you can and you will be very surprised somebody will give you once, twice, they will give you free advice. But after that what are you bringing to the table and most of the time it's not money. Like the mentors I have, like one of my mentors is a billionaire. What I can't offer him money. Like right. that, that doesn't make sense, right? What else can I offer him? Right. So the idea is always have that. Hey, what can I do in return for them? But what are you offering him? I'm just curious. Sorry. Exactly. Now that that's a very interesting question. Sometimes, like one of my mentors uh, is a fan of whiskeys, so I'll go find the rarest of rarest whiskeys and, and I, I, I'll give it to him. Uh, two, uh, one of my mentors actually is extremely shy. And didn't want to be in the public eye. and But I also realized while talking to him that he wanted to overcome that. Because he was personally very shy. But he wanted to, for his business, it would be great if he had a public image. So I helped him actually craft that. Because that is something that I was better at than him. He was much, 10 times better at in business. But when it came to PR, my PR was much stronger. So I kind of helped him with that. Right? So the idea is with every person something It's a different. give and take. Yeah. It's a give and take. Uh, you have to understand what it is. Sometimes people will just give. But it's fine. But it's not very nice of you to just keep taking, taking, taking without giving something in return. Right. You have to figure out what is what is that can, that you can add value to. Right. Uh, because see, every person I think has something to contribute. It's not that, oh, if I'm asking for help, I have I know zero and that person knows hundred. And same way, like I'm mentored to many people. There's so many times that that person, I will ask them for help. Like, okay, I'm teaching you this, but... I need help in that. So you're a mentor to a lot of people now. The it's organically started becoming that way. Uh, the idea is today uh, with Equinox and other businesses, I think we've hit a certain scale, right? Uh, so there are some things I know more than a person who's probably starting out who has maybe five, ten years experience. I may know a little more because I've made those mistakes. Most of the time, the mentor is not because he's smarter. 
they probably made the same mistakes as you and they're just sharing those mistakes with you. A lot of uh, uh, mentoring is around guiding them on, uh, it's many times story based. Like one of my mentors and the, the funny thing is like Dr. Velumani, right, uh, he's the founder of Thyrocare. He wasn't in supposed to be a mentor, he wasn't in supposed to be my investor. I was actually buying one of his divisions from his company, right. And uh, I landed up meeting him and he was just sharing stories about how he built Thyrocare. Not numbers, stories. And that blew me away. He spoke about his mistakes. He spoke about, he had stories around strategy. He's an amazing storyteller, right? And I think that is what makes him so powerful. Like, that's something I want to learn from. Like, how do you tell stories? Like, I remember the first time he came to Equinox. This is after he invested in the company and he had to address the entire team. Me and the entire team were shit scared of what he's going to do, right? Uh, at the end of the one and a half hour he spent with us, my entire team was laughing. Half of them were rolling on the floor laughing. Because he entertained, motivated the entire company in English, Hindi put together. He had punchlines, he had life lessons that he was able to share. But instantly, the entire company was like, yeah, he, he, he is somebody that we respect, he is somebody we know. Not because, oh, he is the founder of Thyrocare. Because as a human being, he is an amazing person and he can inspire you. Many a times, it's just inspiring your teammates, right? And that comes down to, again, a culture. At Equinox, we don't use the word manager, we use the word leader. Because I think people should be led, not managed, right? And I think people should be inspired to do better work. Uh, how does, how do, would you define the culture at Papa Cream? So, uh, at Papa Cream, right, we, we had a very startup culture. And even though we've grown a certain way, uh, it is still, you know, it functions a lot like a startup. Uh, there's... Uh, we like to keep it very flat, you know, uh, opinions are discussed at v different levels because they've been with us uh, from the beginning. And, and, and to, to some ex extent, that's like a proof of culture, right? When your team, when you started, is still with you, you know, so many years and uh, they take the liberty and pride to, you know, offer suggestions, opinions. And we often call them and ask them that. So I think it is very flat. Uh, we bring in uh, a little bit of hierarchy where it's needed because there is a lot of unskilled labor also involved. Uh, but I think at the uh, operation level, at the office level, I think it is very, very flat. And people uh, have have been given that sort of freedom to come and tell me also, I don't think this makes sense. And I like it's very openly welcomed. It's not like there's no uh, there's no ego wars going on, you know, especially because when you've grown, struggled together, survived, you know, a lot of uh, hustles and all of that, I think those barriers are just removed. And because that team is still very intact, we breathe that culture and that just like sort of reverberates, you know, across. Love so it. that's sort of how so, it is. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up the no ego piece. So that I think it's very important that companies have that as a policy, as a culture. So outside all my cabins, there is uh, something that's written. It says no ego, no fear. And uh, anytime I meet uh, the you know, the joining batch, so every couple of weeks we have a batch that joins Equinox. So every month I land up meeting all the uh, new teammates, and I tell them like, hey, have you seen my that thing out of the game? They're like, yeah. Like you know, I'm like, do you know what that means? They're like, yeah, no ego, no fear. We should have no ego, no fear. I said, I know, but many a times, when a intern or a fresher interacts with a CEO, there is fear. Uh, 
may not be ego at that time, but there is a lot of fear. I'm like, yeah, but that is the reason it says no ego, no fear. Is you should not have fear. You should not have fear when you interact with the founder, CEO. You shouldn't have fear when you interact with your leaders, with other teammates, other teammates across you know different departments, and you definitely should not have ego, right? And any time we see that ego kind of coming up, it lands up damaging uh, people's relationships. It lands up damaging the kind of work that they do, right? Uh, because nobody wants to work with people who have large egos, right? And once you kind of let that go, you will see the culture just blossoms into something amazing. So my uh, last question to you, Tanvi, would be: If not Papa Cream, then what would you have been doing? <laughs> I've honestly not thought of another uh, alternative, you know, because I think I breathe it all the time. Uh, but yeah, actually, that's a question I've never like really had to think about. Um, but I think that I'm. Uh, I have more of a creative mindset. Uh, so I feel like uh, I would probably do something more in the creative space. Uh, I don't know, like maybe uh, design something, I think maybe an interior designer or something more in the creative space. Okay. I don't know what it would be, but I feel like uh, I am creatively inclined. And I think a lot of decisions that I take uh, with our branding comes with a very high sense of aesthetics where I'm not okay to compromise and there are those are things that have to go by me so I feel like maybe somewhere in the design spaces where I feel uh, you know I would do well but I really haven't thought of doing anything else apart from this <laughs> so when you spoke about that even though I have no background in graphics or aesthetics or anything uh, that is something I am extremely painfully uh, cognizant of like a pixel here and there and my market team here will be smiling behind the scenes because they know Pixel here and there, I'm like, why is that this? Why is it not exactly aligned? And like all of them now have been trained on things like how do you center things? How do you know? Make things aesthetically pleasing for a very simple reason. Something small off, which is client facing or going out to the world. It, it makes a difference. It's a very, very small difference. Oh, it's not that, oh, because it is little off, uh, people will think badly of us and not give us revenue. It's nothing to do with that. Right? But when you're building a brand, having things which are aesthetically pleasing, actually have bring that premiumness to the correct brand, yeah right having uh, ads having a website that looks nice having a social media channel that looks nice makes a big difference because that is a small but a very very critical part of your branding correct right and uh, I, I i so i can completely yeah like i also sometimes get this thing that oh you should launch sooner like you know you see these brands that are launching like every month you know your launches are a little slower i was like i know but that is something like i can look at it from the ops part but like if my packaging design takes so many months, I, I, that cannot be shortened. Yeah. Like, you know, because if it requires that many edits, it does. And I think all the people I work for in, in terms of like, you know, design or packaging, they know how, you know, what I want, what I'm particular about. And I try to work with those people because I think the marriage of aesthetics is very important. So you, you either get it or you don't, you know, so Got it's it. one of those things. So I'm seeing, uh, so I have not seen Papa Cream since 2015. I've been watching Papa Cream maybe for the last two, three years. Okay. But uh, the rise of the brand is amazing. I think the new uh, flavors that you're coming out with, the new innovation that you're coming out with is amazing. I don't think of it as slow. I think you are innovating at quite a, a quite an interesting pace. Uh, but uh, I, I'm glad to see uh, that it's rising and I wish you and everyone Papa Cream the very best. And if there's anything we can do to ever help you, 
please let us know everything. Thank you so much. It was lovely chatting with you. Uh, and thank you for inviting uh, me <laughs> over. I think there's so many things that I have to sit and think about, you know, that I probably answer as like, okay, yeah, especially what else would I do? I think that's a question that I haven't gotten in like the longest time. Because I don't think people see me as, you know, doing anything else. So that's something I think I'm really going to think about. Like, what, would I, what would I be doing if not this, you know? So thanks a lot for thank uh, you. coming on the show. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah.